John chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 17 this morning. What is one of the first things you ask someone when you're getting to know them? What do you do for work? Now, this, of course, can be asked in a lazy, superficial kind of a way. You can ask it in a competitive way as you're sizing yourself up. You can ask it in such a way that you reduce somebody to their work. It can also be asked in a meaningful way to get to know somebody. If you're asking the right questions and you're listening, you can use work as a means to get to know somebody. Work can tell you a lot about a person. My mom cuts hair, so I stay so fresh. <laughs> no, she lives in Dallas, this is why my hair is so long. Okay, well, you sir is our example. Her work as a means of getting to know her. Where she's from, why she does what she does, the kind of work she produces. My mom grew up in Mexico. Her dad, my grandfather, was a day laborer in California picking produce seven days a week during harvesting season. When my mom was 16, she cared for her eight younger brothers and ran their ranch for a year when my grandparents moved to L.A. She then moved to the States when she was 17 without speaking any English. She worked at a grocery store for 15 years without ever missing one day. She walked to work after she got her tonsils removed. Okay? She's tough, tough as nails. She married my biological father. She became a stay-at-home mom when they had us kids. Then when I was in the fourth grade, in the Lord's kindness, my mom went to cosmetology school. There was a little school right by where we were living in Kansas. She started cutting hair when we moved to Dallas, which would become our livelihood because my dad died when I was in the seventh grade. My mom worked hard, first in, last out, on her feet all day. I promise you, she's the hardest working person in her salon. The most loyal, the best listener, the most reliable. She's outlasted everybody in close to 20 years, including two owners, two previous owners. She's good at what she does. She's been successful and profitable. Now, again, you can use my mom's work as a beeline to get to know her, her story. Okay, she cuts hair. That means she went to trade school. That means she's not college educated. If she was born in the States speaking English and had the means, I suspect she would have gone to college. That is not a value judgment about college or trade school or the work my mom does. She does good work. She makes good money. I mean that only to say people who can in our, in our country typically do. Okay, but again, we can use it asking the right questions as a means to get to know her. She didn't go. Why? She immigrated to the States at the age of 17, not speaking English. Her family were not people of means. Again, I don't mean any of that pejoratively. In my mind, those are testaments to her and our family, but they tell me about her, her origin. Okay, my mom, again, is not reduced to her work. She's also not severed from nine to five. What she does, how she does it, why she does it, it's all reflection of her, not just her career. Okay, she has the work ethic of an immigrant who ran the family ranch for a year while taking care of eight younger brothers. She has the work ethic of a single mom, or her mom who cared for three children after her husband died. The size and loyalty of her client base, her longevity at the salon, the skill at which she does her craft, they all tell us something about her. Not just something about her work, but something about her. Our work on some level, it tells a story about who we are. Now, 
for many of us, it might maybe not even tell the story we want to tell as we're trying to get somewhere or we're not where we want to be or we can't be because of mistakes we've made, whatever it is. Jesus' work, unlike our work, is a perfect reflection of his character. He actually reveals himself by what he does. We might say even in the family business, as we'll see this morning. We learn about him by looking at his work or works and then by listening to his own interpretation of what he does. His work tells a story about him, his origin, where he comes from, tells a story about his worth, and it reveals and demands a response. Keep this in mind as we read the text, John chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. If you are able, please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. John 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can be seated. Jesus' work demonstrates three things about him we'll see in the text. If you're taking notes, this is our points this morning. Jesus' work demonstrates that, one, he is equal to God. Second, that he is from God. And thirdly, that he is worthy like God. Jesus' work demonstrates that he is equal to God, that he is from God, and that he is worthy like God. Even better, we could say, the work of Jesus shows us he is equal to God because he is from God. Therefore, he is worthy like God. First, Jesus' work demonstrates that he is equal to God, meaning he is God. Just as Jesus' work, presumably as a carpenter, reveals he's a man, so too Jesus' work in creating and maintaining the universe, Jesus' work in healing a man on the Sabbath, Jesus' work in giving life, raising the dead, and judging all to the glory of his name, reveal that he's God. Right? That's not man work. That's God's work. We begin verse 17 Jesus responded to them. Now, obviously, we're jumping in the middle of something. You recall, if you were with us last time, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. This is the second trip we see in the book of John. Jesus had just healed a man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. He does so by speaking a word. Now, what should have led to praise leads to verse 16, persecution. Why? Why? Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. 
Again, where there should have been adulation, today we'll see an accusation. One that will turn into another. They accuse Jesus first of being a Sabbath breaker, which is quite serious. This is why they begin persecuting him. We don't get any of the details, but Jesus goes out of his way to respond to them. Okay, so you can think of it as though Jesus is on trial. The charge is Sabbath breaking. How does the defendant plea? Verse 17. My father is still working, and I am working also. Now, on the face of it, it's kind of an odd response. They're thinking, you're saying Joseph is a Sabbath breaker, and that's why you are? Like you learned this from your dad? To make sense of what Jesus is saying, we need to understand the Sabbath command. Okay, it comes to Israel as part of their covenant package with God in the Decalogue, what we call the Ten Commandments. So we hear this in Exodus chapter 20, beginning verse 8, the Lord speaking, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You were to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So for Israel, the Sabbath, that's our Saturday, it was a holy day. It was set apart for rest, which on some level mimics God's own rest on the seventh day. After six days of creating, as we heard in our scripture reading, which is work, God then in Genesis 2 rests. But here's what every Jew understood. God resting does not mean he stopped working. Okay? God resting on the seventh day means a few things. One, it's temple imagery. It's as though God had just made for himself a temple in the cosmos. He then fills it with his presence. He rests in it. It is a rest that we're actually instructed to seek to enter into, Hebrews chapter 4. So it doesn't even end after a 24-hour period. This is perpetual rest as God is filling the universe. We are called to enter into that rest, which we do in Christ. Second, God is resting in the sense that he completed his works of creation. At least no more new creations than the old creation, we might say. Thirdly, God is giving us an analogy of what we as creatures should do. We spend most of our week working. This is normal. And then we rest. Importantly, God did not rest because he got tired. Okay, Love Boy's classic song, Everybody's Working for the Weekend, it does not apply to God. <laughs> Dolly Parton's working nine to five does not apply to God. God did not need a break. He did not exert or exhaust himself in making the cosmos. He has infinite power. God alone can be at complete rest and still be working. Now, the Jews understood God did not stop working on the seventh day. If God stopped working, no one would be holding the universe together. No one would be governing everything toward its appointed end. Creation is not like a clock that you make and then set aside. Paul tells us, Acts 17, 28, in God we live and move and have our being. He's always working. Okay, when some people take a day off, it can be a real inconvenience to you. You pull into the Chick-fil-A parking lot on a Sunday, only to remember they're not open. Like Job, you rip your robe. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. No, it's an inconvenience. Your AC goes out, let's say, on a Sunday. Your tech you normally call isn't working. It's an inconvenience. If God stops working for a millisecond, 
we're done. Not just dead, we cease to be. Everything that depends upon God for its existence, for its life and breath, which is everything that is not God, if God stopped working, every non-God thing would cease to be. Okay, we're talking Thanos snap, but on every created thing. Every star, every mountain, every atom, every quark, time itself, every created thing unravels. The Jews understood God doesn't take vacations or days off or even breaks. So though Israel was commanded not to work on the Sabbath, they understood that God continued to work. He has to. If he doesn't, we're done. Okay, back to this trial. Jesus accused of Sabbath breaking of working on a day when only one being is allowed to work. This is his response to them. My father's still working, and I am working also. The implications are obvious. Only God can work on the Sabbath. I can work on the Sabbath. Therefore, I am God. Jesus is saying, whatever exempts God in your mind from the Sabbath command, apply that to me. Now, imagine being a police officer. You just pulled someone over for going 90 in a school zone. Really serious. Sir, why are you speeding? Oh, well, officer, I just robbed a bank, and I have a hostage in my trunk. Okay, it's like, we're going to need some backup. Hey, Jesus, why are you breaking the Sabbath? Oh, I'm not. I'm God. Yeah, the crazy temple guy's back, and he's calling God his father. Jesus, maybe crudely we could say, he's saying that he's on family business. This is why John tells us, verse 18, you can follow along, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus is now being accused of two things, not just Sabbath-breaking, but blasphemy. The Jews understand what Jesus is doing. It's silly, honestly, when people today say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Religious leaders of his own day understood he was making himself to be equal to God. John 10, verse 23, they pick up stones to stone him. They say, it's for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, You may recall from my sermon on the prologue, the starting point of all theology is what we call the creator-creature distinction. Okay, you can make a little chart in your notes. You put creator on one side, creation on the other. You have God on one side and everything else has been created and depends upon him for its life, for its breath, for its being. There is an infinite chasm between the two. On one level, we can understand their confusion and their consternation. They confess the one God who is eternal, invisible, whom no one can look upon without dying. And this Jewish man is saying, that's me. Now the problem, Augustine says, is that they saw the flesh, they did not see the word. We understand, as Christians, what we sing around Christmas. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. They only saw the man because of the hardness of their heart, And so they only hear blasphemy. They understand that Jesus is claiming equality with God because of this phrase in particular. You'll look at it in verse 18. He calls God my father. This like really triggers them, my father. 
Why? Were they not all singing, oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide? Israel is often described as a corporate son of God. We see this Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. Even David and his sons are described as God's sons. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God is seldomly called Father in the Old Testament. It's there, but the Jews, out of reverence, they did not call God Father. They feared that it was transgressing this creator-creature distinction. What really rubs them is that Jesus says, my father. Okay, not Israel's father, not our father, my father. He's saying something that implies exclusivity, right? He's speaking to their relationship, to their shared identity, to their shared nature. He's telling us, as we'll see, about his origin. Everybody is picking up what Jesus is putting down when he says, my father is still working and so am I. John tells us right there, he's saying Jesus is making himself equal to God. Now, this is important for us, brothers and sisters. It means that father and son, it doesn't mean greater and lesser. It's telling us about their relationship, their intimacy, their, their unity. It tells us about Jesus' origin and his nature. We'll see this in a second. Jesus' work of healing a man on a Sabbath It reveals he's equal to God. The Father works on the Sabbath. The Son works on the Sabbath. More specifically, what Jesus wants us to see is that he works like the Father because he comes from the Father. Okay, this brings us to the second thing that Jesus' work demonstrates, that Jesus is from God. Jesus is from God, which means he is God. The reason that Jesus is God is because he's from God. I'm going to say this as a disclaimer before this point, point two. It is long and teachy. (laughs) I know you're thinking, John, you're always long and teachy. (laughs) This one is especially teachy. It's all good. My goal is not to, my goal is not density, but clarity on matters that are important, right? God has revealed himself as the triune God because he is. He saves us as the triune God. God, he calls us into union with himself, the triune God. God also redeems us and calls us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love God in part by sanctifying our reason, by using what God has given us from faith to struggle to understand as best we can as creatures what God has revealed about himself. Next week, I promise, I pray, I hope we'll we'll be more devotional as we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for us. Today will be more teachy. I ask you to bear with me. It's just as important. It's foundational, fundamental for us to understand next week. So here we go. We try. Verse 19. So they, of course, they understand Jesus to be saying he's equal with God. Jesus now is responding not to the accusation of breaking the Sabbath, but to blasphemy. C19, Jesus replied. Truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Jesus is explaining how or why the Father's working entails the Son's working. Now, verse 19 is pretty knotted. It requires a bit of untangling to understand what Christ is saying. One of the best things when we're not understanding something is to remember what Scripture has already 
showed us or teaches us. Now, John helps us out in particular because he gives us the prologue. In the prologue, we get these theological principles or even dogmatic guardrails that help us to read and understand the rest of the book, okay? So John tells us, you recall, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that the Word is God. This is the Son who is God we see in chapter 1, verse 18. He was with the Father in the beginning. The Father created all things through him. This means that the Son and the Father are both the one God, and yet they're distinct, This also, of course, applies to the Holy Spirit. We'll spend most of our time today talking about Father and Son because the text does. One God eternally existing as three persons. They're distinct as persons. They're not different in their natures. One God. Now, the Son, of course, does something unique. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, the Son assumes a human nature, This means the divine son is both God and man. He does so without ceasing to be God. One person, two natures. This is not true of any of us. We are all one person, one nature. Okay, no matter how sloppy your roommate is, they are not true pig, true man. (laughs) They are one person, one man. This means, though, that interpreting text can be difficult It can be tricky because everything that Scripture says about the Son is true of the Son, but not necessarily true of both natures. On one level, this is really intuitive. Okay, so in John chapter 4, when we're reading about the Son being tired and thirsty, he's worn out from his travels, from the Son beating upon him. I think intuitively as we read that, we recognize it's talking about his humanity. Like the divine nature does not grow tired and weak and thirsty. The divine nature does not drink water to keep alive. God the Son, according to his humanity, experienced real thirst because he's real man. He had to be made like us in every way if he's going to save us. When the Son dies upon the cross, none of us, I hope, think the divine nature died. That's not possible. God is life. He can't die. He's spirit. He can't be pierced. We understand that the Son's human body died. His lungs filled up with blood. He couldn't breathe. He suffocated. His human soul was separated from his human body. That is the definition of death. What we're doing is we're predicating things of each nature to the person, which is good. God the Son died. God the Son got thirsty. God the Son got tired. That's true of him, the person, according to his humanity. God the Son created the cosmos. God the Son holds the universe together. Those are true things of the Son according to his divinity. There's a lot more that can be said, much we don't understand. But again, I think on some level, it's intuitive as we're reading it. There are some things that are appropriate to apply to God, some things appropriate to apply to his human nature. Now, some texts are just harder to understand. It's not quite as intuitive or clear which nature is being spoken about and why. Verse 19 is one of those. I think that Jesus is speaking about his divinity. This is the traditional reading of the text from Cyril, Augustine, the Scholastics, and so on, because of how Jesus grounds his statement. Jesus saying he works on the Sabbath like the Father. Not similar work, he's doing the same work we'll see. Okay, verse 19. Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Okay, we see the Son seeing the Father, something we know from John 1.18. No one has ever seen the Father but the Son. Again, one of the reasons why we think it's talking about his divinity. Jesus here is saying, the Son only does what he sees the Father doing, and everything, everything the Father does, the Son does. The Father creates, the Son creates. The Father maintains, the Son maintains. Okay, these things are not true of humanity. The Son only does what he sees the Father doing. The Son hasn't seen the Father do things like walk on water. Okay, it makes sense in my mind, in my reading, the, tradi- the traditional reading of the text, it's speaking about his divine nature. Okay, but what does it mean? Again, Jesus has explained the relationship between his works and the Father's works. I only do what I see, everything I see that I do. Talking about maybe the family business. Now, the norm at this time is that you would do probably whatever it is that your parents did. This is long before parents are telling their kids they could grow up to be whatever they want, an astronaut or a president, okay? The Jews, they understood this is not true. (laughs) Nobody told little Peter you could grow up to be Caesar. They said, Peter, you can do whatever you want. You can fish on this side of the lake or that one. Okay, if your father's a carpenter, you can make whatever you want, tables or chairs. Sons come from their fathers and they join in their work. They see what their father's doing and then they do it. But again, because Jesus is speaking about his divinity, we have to think about this in a way that is uh, what Cyril calls, we have to think about it in a God-befitting way. There would be an appropriate and an inappropriate way to think about this. Let me illustrate. I can remember the first time, that's not what I do for work, but pretend I make paper airplanes for work. I don't know. I remember the first time I made a paper airplane for Haddon. You know, just mind-blown. Like you can take paper and turn it into a toy. He didn't know what a paper airplane was. He came to learn about it. There was a point where he didn't even know what a plane was. Okay, and initially he can't do it, so I'm having to make all the paper airplanes for him. Now, as he got a little older, he started doing it, but he struggled still because of his little fingers lacking strength, dexterity. Uh, He would forget when to make what moves, you know. It comes out looking more like, I don't know, a dump truck or something. Doesn't fly like an airplane. Haddon had to watch me and learn. To bluntly, he couldn't do what I was doing first because he was ignorant and weak. Okay, he had his own mind, will, power. He had to grow. Now, over time, he's learned, he grew. Now he can make pretty good paper airplanes. If you served with the children in the back, you probably have found this out to be the case. Okay, he learned something. He was ignorant. He grew in his knowledge. He grew in his own strength, his ability to do something that he was watching me do. He didn't know what it was before he had seen me do it. Okay, Jesus is not saying there was a time where he was like an ignorant, weak, divine toddler, having to watch his father before he could join in the work. Okay, we'll illustrate. The father did not say, son, let's create a horse. Son says, yes, what's a horse? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Father says, let there be horse. He makes perfect horse. Son's like, this is so cool. Father says, now you try. Son says, horse. Father says, that's a great try, but we'll call it a donkey. Right? This would mean that the son is not God. If he's ignorant, if he's lacking knowledge, if he's weak, if he's needing to grow and to change, 
Furthermore, it would mean that he possesses a different will, knowledge, power than the Father. They wouldn't have the same nature. Okay, so we have to understand this text in a God-befitting way using what we know from Scripture. We just read verse 18. The Son is calling himself equal to the Father. He's not turning around now to tell us how he's lesser. There are no degrees of divinity in God. John 1.3 is really helpful. John tells us there, all things, all things were created through the Son, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. This means the Father didn't create some things while the Son was watching. Okay, He's not seeing in such a way that he's excluded from the work. The Father didn't create while the Son watched and learned. Rather, the Father created all things through his word. We saw in John 1, we hear it in Genesis chapter 2 in a kind of shadowy way. But the Son doesn't create on his own. He can do nothing on his own, meaning he can do nothing from himself. The Father created through the Word. This is because the Son is from the Father. What Jesus is explaining to us here in verse 19, the manner in which he does the works of God reflect the manner in which he is God. He is eternally the Son coming forth from the Father. He can only do as he is from the Father. He can only do as he sees. Now, sight in Scripture tends to be used metaphorically for knowledge. Okay, so John 1.18, no one has ever seen the Father. There would be nothing for us to see. The Father doesn't have a body. He's immaterial. Jesus has seen the Father completely, meaning he comprehends. He completely knows the Father. Okay, sight is used metaphorically for knowledge. Jesus is telling us in part how he possesses divine knowledge. It's because he eternally receives it from the Father. Why can Jesus do nothing on his own? It's because he receives his being, we could say who he is, and that he is from the Father. Why does Jesus do everything that the Father does? It's because he receives all that he is from the Father. He receives all that the Father is. Again, Jesus didn't just say he was equal with God to now demonstrate how he's less than God. He's explaining how or in what manner he's God. The church has historically called this eternal generation, which is to say that the Son eternally proceeds from the Father. When we think about language that Scripture uses to describe the Son, they're not empty terms. Okay, the Son is called things like the image of the Father, Colossians 1.15, meaning he's like a copy of the Father. The Son is the Logos, John 1.1, Logos, that's both an idea and a spoken word, which is to say the Son is the Father's perfect self-understanding and expression, and he's called the Son of the Father. It tells us about his unit, their unity, their shared identity, shared nature. It tells us about the Son's origin. This is what Jesus gets at in verse 26. You might look down at it. This is next week's text. For just as the Father has life in himself, okay, God is life, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. The Father is giving it to the Son. I'm going to use really precise language for a second, and then we'll just work our way down Cookie's bottom shelf. Okay? The Father generates the person, we would say, and he communicates the essence. Again, what that means is that what and that the Son is are given to him by the Father. Okay? Cookie's on the bottom shelf. The Son comes forth from the Father eternally. He receives all that the Father is and has. 
This is why he perfectly reflects the Father as his image, as his son, as his word. This is why he can reveal the Father with such clarity on earth. Now, there's so much here that's incredibly complex, but again, as we think about the origin of the Son, it's on some level intuitive because of the language of sonship. There's an analogy with human sonship. Haddon, my son, he came from me, right? There's no stork dropped him off. He therefore reflects me. We share an intimate and a unique relationship. He bears my name. Similar nature, we're both human. Now, of course, there's loads of dissimilarity. The father doesn't choose to generate the son. It's necessary, it's natural. It's not a material act, again, where babies come from. God takes part of a man, part of a woman. This is not true for the son, it's a spiritual act. It's an eternal act. There is no time before the son. If there's no son, there would be no father. Now, there's loads of mystery here that our little minds cannot grasp. What it ought to do is propel us to worship God. We're reminded that he is the creator, that we are the creatures. He has spoken with us about things that we can't understand. On some level, we can grasp. The son is the son because he comes forth from the father in such a way that he's truly God. He's equal to God. And in such a way that there's still only one God. This is why John repeatedly uses from language in the book. John 1.14, the glory that the disciples saw it was the glory as the one and only Son from the Father. This glory that they share, that they both possess, but the Son possesses it as the Son of the Father. So Jesus is saying, simply put, what he is, I am. What he does, I do, because I come from him. Jesus is not creating distance between him and God the Father. He's showing the reason for the equality. The equality that they inherently grasped when he said, my father. Okay, going back to the trial. Earlier, Jesus justified his healing a man on the Sabbath by saying, my father's still working. Now, maybe they heard the father is holding the universe together, right? The father is governing all things. And I am healing a crippled man. Like my father's working, I'm working too, so it's all good. Jesus is saying here, just to make sure you really understand what I'm saying. We're doing the same work. Everything my father does, I do. Healing a man on the Sabbath isn't the only thing on my to-do list today. The father created all things through his word. That's me, John 1.3. The father is holding the universe together right now through his son, that's me, Hebrews 1.3. Who healed the paralytic? The Father, through the Son, and by his Spirit. God is working today, and you're looking at him. Okay, their blasphemy radars, beep, 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 just exploded. People are fainting in the back. Jesus is just going to keep ratcheting up his language to reveal who he is. This is what he does in verse 20. He says, of course, that the Father loves him. He then says that the Father will show him even greater works. Why? So that you will be amazed. I think this means that the Son will do greater works so that those who see will be amazed. The goal, you'll recall from the book of John, is that we would believe. 
The goal is that we would believe and it leads to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, the son's gonna do greater works. The father's gonna do them through the son. What could be a greater work than healing a man who had been a paralytic for 38 years? How about raising a man from the dead, John 11? Jesus' own resurrection from the dead, John 20. Final resurrection and judgment, John 5, 22. The son will do greater works. Tells us explicitly what they are, beginning in verse 21. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. Now, every Jew, probably every person before the modern era, knew that life began with God. Death was determined by God. Resurrection is a work of God. Judgment is an act of God. It's his prerogative. Jesus is taking this and he's applying it to himself. They would have been quite familiar with Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. Jesus saying, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. Now, what separates Jesus from the Old Testament prophets, you might be thinking, Elijah raised him from the dead. Elisha raised him from the dead as well. And that's not the same Elijah, Elisha. Is that Jesus, you'll see, is actually giving life to whom he wants. The Old Testament prophets were merely instruments. Jesus is the God they were praying to. I alone and he, I give life. Just as the Father raises and gives life, so also the Son. Now, importantly, because it could sound like this is contradicting something Jesus just said earlier, the Father and the Son are not raising different people. Just as the Father created through the Word, His Son, just as the Father is going, the Father too then will raise through His Son, that is the Word, and by His Spirit, John 6, 63. There is one divine will and power. Okay? This is your second morning. We're, we're already deep in the weeds. We're just going to keep on mowing. <sighs> There's a Latin phrase coined by Augustine, translated to English, it basically, basically rendered, all the external works of the Trinity are indivisible, meaning everything that the Trinity does outside of itself, the whole Trinity does, okay, even bottom shelf. Everything that God does, God does. Okay, the Father, oh, whoa, whoa. So they pay me the big bucks. No. The Father doesn't create on Monday while the Son is creating on Tuesday. The Spirit's creating on Wednesday. Spirit doesn't hold the universe together sometimes on a weekend so that the Father and Son can catch Top Gun 2. Right? The Trinity works together in all of external works as is fitting for who they are eternally and internally. Now, we've already considered one example. We'll go back to a creation. The Father did not create by himself. John 1, 2. Or John 1, 3. He created all things through his word. In Genesis 1, we saw the Spirit is there hovering. Okay? The Father creates by speaking his word, by breathing. The Father speaks by his word and by his Spirit. The Spirit is there as well, bringing to perfection all the things that the Father has spoken through his Son. There's this basic pattern in Scripture. It's never reversed. Things come from the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. 
So who created, who preserves, who healed the man who will raise the dead? The Father through the Son and by his Spirit. The one God acts in an indivisible manner. Just as the Father and Son are one, Spirit two, John 10, 30, so too they all work together as one. God will one day make all this clear. Verse 22, the Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, again, requires untangling. It seems like Jesus here is saying something completely different from what he just said in verse 19. There Jesus says he only does what he sees the Father doing. Here he's saying he's going to do something that the Father doesn't do. Now, if we keep reading down to verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear. This isn't something that the Father is not doing. Rather, I think we're to understand it as though Jesus is saying judgment is a divine work. They would have understood this. It means that all the persons of the Godhead are involved, one will, one power, one justice, one righteousness. But it's given to that as it's mediated through the Messiah, the Davidic King, okay, Jesus Christ. When people die and they stand before the judgment seat, they're going to see a human, the God-man, Jesus Christ. They're not going to see the essence of the Father. They will see the one they rejected in the flesh, the son in turn will be honored. People will marvel. The religious leaders even who denied him, they are going to marvel at what was veiled as now become clear for all to see. You might think about the language in Philippians chapter 2. It is because of the son's humiliation, his obedience under the point of death, that he's then exalted and given a name above every other name. We know from the book of Isaiah that the name is Yahweh a name that Jesus, according to his divinity, already possesses, but now he possesses it as the God-man in a way that's visible for everyone. Those who rejected him will kneel before his throne of judgment. He will be honored. Again, here's what's happening. Jesus has taken all these divine works, creation, preservation, healing, life, resurrection, judgment. He's applied them to himself. He's made himself equal to God, because of his origin, he is God from God, true God from true God. Therefore, he should be treated as God. We come now to our last point. The last thing that Jesus' work demonstrates in the text is that he is worthy. Again, because Jesus is equal to God, because he is from God, therefore he is worthy like God. And in fact, this judgment is given to the Son. Why? We see it in verse 23 so that all peoples may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In the language of Philippians chapter 2, one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and it will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. The Jewish leaders may deny that he's God the Son. They may dispute whether or not he's the Messiah. They may question his right to the Davidic throne. They will not on the day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, all of your non-Christian friends and families and neighbors, they will come to know one day what you believe. But it will not be in joy for them. On that day, what was veiled in flesh will become visible. All will confess that Jesus is God, the Son. They will confess and acknowledge that he is the Christ. Some, like us, we will confess it as his brothers and sisters and co-heirs. 
Others will acknowledge who he is as his enemies. Brothers and sisters, this ought to propel us to share the gospel, to save the sinner and to honor our Savior. He is worthy. We would tell you, if you're here with us this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, we would implore you to turn from your sins and to trust in Jesus today. Jesus is who Scripture reveals him as. He is God become man. Further still, he died upon the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead that we might be forgiven, that we might have eternal life, which is communion with this God forever. I would encourage you to stay after service, talk with any one of our members about the gospel. Come back next week and hear about the hope that we have in the resurrection. Our sermons are not always so teachy. Unless you like it, they're always like that. So again, notice, judgment is given to the son so that he is honored just as the father is honored, not in a lesser degree. He is equal. The one indivisible God whose works are undivided receives undivided worship. Said differently, you cannot worship the father and not the son. It goes both ways. You cannot worship the son and not the father. Jesus goes on, verse 23, anyone who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. No Jesus, no God. Jesus tells us, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't go to the Father, Father to honor him without his Son. Even more fundamentally, Jesus is God. He is the Father's word, his image, his Son. He's the Father's perfect self-expression. If you do not like Jesus, you will not like his dad. You cannot have one without the other. The Son is the perfect expression of the Father. Cyril of Alexandria says, He, that is, the Father depicts his entire self in the nature of his offspring. The author of Hebrews says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his neighbor. Nature. God doesn't have neighbors like that. Paul agrees. He is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of deity dwells in him. Colossians 1. This is why Jesus can say to Thomas, if you've seen me, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. This is not because Jesus and the Father are the same person, but because they share the same nature. Okay, John 14, 11, the Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. You cannot have one without the other. In everything that Jesus does, he doesn't just reveal himself. He reveals the Father. John 1, 18, this is because no one has seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side has revealed him. Okay, if you do not receive the sent Son, you reject the sending Father, period. There is no other way to get to him, no other means by worshiping him, no other way to come to know him meaningfully. He's the very same God. No Jesus, no God. Now, here's the real irony. They are accusing Jesus of blasphemy. But in rejecting the Son, they are the ones blaspheming against God. People today often say things like all religions are the same. They might say something even more specific like Muslims have the same God as Christians or Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses because they have a Jesus, they have the same God. Brothers and sisters, it's not only wrong, it's blasphemy. If you deny that Jesus is the divine Son, if you reject his only means of salvation, you cannot honor the Father, period. You have rejected him in the one he sent. 
The one who came to reveal will judge all those who rejected him. The problem that we see in the book of John time and time again is that people just don't like what they see. It's not that Jesus is being unclear. He's as clear as light. John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. The problem is people, left to themselves, they prefer their own version of God, their own Jesus by a different name. And so the son is not honored in his own home country. Again, his works are intended to reveal who he is that we might believe and have eternal life, communion with the triune God. And yet for some people, it makes them duller. By faith, NBC, we see, we marvel at, we ought to. Jesus, the one who is equal to God, the one who is from God, we respond knowing that he is worthy like God. For all that he is, for all that he's done, for all that he deserves, we join in what is happening in heaven now. They are declaring, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive all possible honor and glory and power. May we give him what is owed for who he is and what he's done. Let's pray.